This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on David Berkowitz. Richard David Falco was born on June 1st, 1953, making him a Gemini in Brooklyn, New York. Now, since I've already covered what was going on in the world in the 1950s, and specifically in New York in my previous podcast about Joel Rifkin, I figure we can skip it this time and just get right into the story. David's birth parents were Joseph Kleinman and Elizabeth Betty Broder. Betty was born around 1913 in Brooklyn into a poor family of immigrants. Her father, William, was from Poland and her mother, Gussie, was from Austria. The family spoke mid-European Yiddish. Betty was one of nine siblings who from a young age was expected to work and bring money into the household so that the family could survive. She graduated from school in 1927 at just 14 years old. In the community, as well as in the country, there was talk of a coming depression, the Great Depression as it would be known later. She worked hard and what pennies she earned quote, put bread on the table. Sometimes that would be the difference between she and her siblings going to bed hungry or not. According to the book, The Son of Sam, at 19 years old, Betty met Anthony or Tony Falco at an outdoor dance. He was an Italian American and Catholic. She later described him as, quote, rugged, tall, strong, and very handsome. Tony and Betty married in December of 1935. They had to get married in Brooklyn's municipal building because her rabbi would not marry them, obviously, being two completely different religions. She and Tony both worked hard, and they saved every bit of money they made until finally, in 1939, 
they bought a fish store and money began to be not quite so tight. That same year, Betty gave birth to the couple's daughter, Rosalind, and before another year was to pass, Tony left. He had begun having an affair with another woman. He and Betty actually never officially divorced. So, she was now a single mother trying to run a business by herself, and it unfortunately went bankrupt. Eight years later, she met a handsome, married man named Joseph Kleinman from Long Island. He was an up-and-coming real estate agent, trying to profit off of the selling of land that was once used as potato fields that would soon be turned into prime New York property. Now, as scandalous as that sounds, it was then the mid-1940s. Divorce laws were different. The marriage had been over for some time, and his wife was fine with them leading separate lives, but she would not grant him a divorce, and even if she had, Joseph and Betty would have had to have permission from the court to get married to each other. It was simply easier for Joseph and his wife to live separate lives than get divorced. Betty became pregnant in 1952 at 39 years old. When she told Joseph about the pregnancy, he told her to get rid of it, that he would not pay, quote, one cent in child support. So, she began the process of adopting out her unborn child. She found out that the couple that the baby was going to be adopted by were upstanding, Jewish, and had not been able to have children of their own. She gave birth to David and gave him her legal last name of Falco and then begrudgingly handed him over. She later said that she actually ran all the way home in tears and had to turn around and go back to the hospital due to hemorrhaging. But back home she went and continued her life with her now 12-year-old daughter as well as continuing to see Joseph. Betty states that she was distraught at having to give him up, but she said that it was what had to be done. Joseph later died in 1965 of cancer, never seeing or knowing anything about his son. So, Richard David Falco was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz from the Bronx. They were a middle-class couple who owned a hardware store. They swapped his first and middle name, and now he was officially David Richard Berkowitz. Nathan and Pearl were so happy and settled into life as a family. There's not really any information about his infancy or very early childhood. We know his parents doted on him, especially his mother. Being an only child, he was naturally solitary and content with his own company. David was also a bit of a chubby child, and he was teased about it. One of David's favorite playtime activities was to hide and sneak around, so his father lovingly gave him nicknames like Sneaky, Snoop, and Spy. Once he started kindergarten, however, he became a much more difficult child, often bullying the other children. 
For whatever reason, he missed many, many days of kindergarten. It was pretty clear to his teachers that he was a moody and easily upset child, that he was quite hyperactive and had a harder time staying focused. In 1960, at seven years old, he was given an IQ test, the results of which were 118, far, far above average, and he showed some talent for baseball. Also at seven years old, he was playing outside when a car drove by and grazed him, causing him to have a slight head injury. Also around this time, the other kids began to bully him back. And for whatever reason, at this age, his parents decided to tell him that he was adopted, which was a devastating blow to David. Within the next year, he was hit in the head by an unknown person and suffered a four-inch gash on his head. He soon watched a horrific accident happen right in front of him where a mother and her child were struck and killed by a car. By the time that David entered sixth grade, he no longer applied himself in school. He began stealing and busting out windows and cars. He set fires, and it was said that he also toyed with torturing a few animals, including his mother's parakeet. His parents, becoming deeply concerned, had him begin to see a therapist, but it did absolutely nothing. At 13 years old, he had his bar mitzvah, and it was said that he had no friends that showed up, nor did his parents really have a lot of friends, so there was barely anyone there. But none of that compared to finding out that his mother had breast cancer, and soon after, in 1967, when he was 14 years old, Pearl died. David was completely devastated. He later said that he felt like his father had actually kept the cancer from him for far too long, and he resented that deeply. So his father, Nathan, sat Shiva, which is a week-long mourning period that people observe after their close loved ones have passed away, but David was still expected to go to school. His grades, not already as good as they could be, began to get worse. By the time he was a sophomore in high school, he had actually missed 36 days and was failing most of his classes. At 17 years old, David and his father moved from their home to Co-op City into a high-rise apartment complex. He and his father's relationship, already a little strained, and especially so when Nathan began dating another woman named Mary, became especially hard when he married that woman while David was still in high school. Finally, David Berkowitz graduated from high school in 1971 and immediately enlisted in the army. So that was David's childhood with a bit of history about his birth parents. Other than knowing his name and his occupation, we literally know nothing about his birth father. All we know was that he felt trapped in a marriage and had an affair with David's birth mother. We do know some of Betty's history, 
which doesn't indicate that there were any known mental illnesses in her family. Sure, they were immigrants, but they came to the United States before World War I, so I don't see any super high levels of stress that would have long-lasting effects through the generations like they've proven with Holocaust survivors, for example. Betty and her family were poor, sure, but her family was close and loving. I just don't believe David had any genetic propensity toward mental illness, but of course we can't be 100% sure. So then we have to look at his environment. He didn't know he was adopted until he was seven years old. So between his birth, which of course went smoothly, no fetal injury, and then seven years old, he had no knowledge of this. His parents were middle class and he was an only child. He didn't know hunger or abuse. His father did work long hours in the hardware store, but that was and still is the standard. His mother attended every need and loved on him constantly. David did later say that she was a bit of a nag, but again, most of us have experienced that from some family member or another with no ill effects. So, as we have talked about before, a lot of different issues can come up once a child finds out that they've been adopted, and it is a lot to process as anyone can imagine. Of course, depending on the age of when the child is told does play a role, and experts say if you're going to tell your children that they're adopted, the younger, the better. Children may feel grief over a perceived loss of the relationship with their birth parents, as well as any cultural connections that they think they might have missed out on. They may struggle with self-esteem issues and identity development issues. They may believe something about them made their birth parents not want them. There is also something called the, quote, adopted child syndrome. According to Dr. Tracy L. Carlos, the syndrome is a term used to describe a set of behaviors that have been used to explain problems in bonding, attachment, lying, stealing, defiance of authority, and acts of violence with regards to adopted children. But these cases are pretty rare. Most adopted children grow up to be healthy, well-adjusted adults. This means that if an adopted child who is loved and well taken care of is openly communicated with and so on, who grows up to be a serial killer, often already have underlying issues that have nothing to do with the adoption. It's the saying, correlation does not show causation. The pathology was already there, sewn into the fabric of that child's being. We know David experienced a couple of head injuries. One in particular needed stitches on his forehead. Not unlike Richard Ramirez, having a head injury could also cause an injury to the frontal lobe, which is in charge of how we express our emotions, solve complex problems, our cognitive skills, judgment, and memory, as well as language and sexual behaviors. David became sexually aware at the young age of nine and later stated that he preferred to pleasure himself 
or do what they called back then heavy petting than have actual intercourse with a girl. But the girls weren't very interested in dating him in the first place. You can be sure that this affected him as well. The death of David's mother, Pearl, when he was 14 years old, would certainly be difficult for any child, especially when he was going through puberty. I mean, he and his mother were very, very close. And the resentment he felt toward his father for beginning to move on and eventually marrying another woman, well, that would be hard as well. But again, nothing that millions of other people haven't experienced also. So my analysis is that he was already displaying troubling behaviors, such as being a bully to other children, as just one example, far before he knew he had been adopted, when his life was easy and predictable. I believe personally that the pathology was already there. So David enlisted in the army on June 23, 1971 and passed the psychological and physical tests easily, which indicated that he would do well in infantry training and was considered a normal recruit. After boot camp, he was stationed in South Korea for 10 months. During that time, the other soldiers took to calling him Wolf because of his abundant body hair. David also began experimenting with marijuana, mescaline, amphetamines, and acid. He was later busted for stealing food from the mess hall and was also cited twice for refusing to move with his unit as he had been ordered to. He became somewhat famous for being late. One night, he missed the bus going back to the barracks, so he was considered AWOL, or absent without official leave, and he was fined $50, which was a lot of money back then. Then, sometime in 1972, 19-year-old David had his first real sexual experience. He hired himself a prostitute and some venereal disease along with it. In January 1973, he was moved and stationed in Fort Knox, Kentucky, where he began going to a local Baptist church and praying because he said that he felt, quote, empty. The military, however, had given him a rating of an outstanding and dependable soldier. We know about this next part because David kept journals. He wrote about setting over 1,400 fires. So he was simultaneously changing his Jewish faith and being baptized as a Baptist. He was also being incredibly destructive. Then on June 25, 1974, David was honorably discharged from the army. Now, either right before he joined the army or while David was away, his father, Nathan, and his new bride, Mary, had moved and settled in Florida. So when David got back to the Bronx, he was alone. He got a job as a security guard at first and was subsequently bitten by one of the guard dogs. But outside of that, he later stated that he got along well with the dogs compared to his co-workers. Once settled in his job, he enrolled at the Bronx Community College, though he was only enrolled for one year. 
Also during this time, he quit being a security guard and was a cab driver, but that didn't last long either. Now, a bit of a disclaimer about this next part. Some sources say that his adoptive parents told him that his mother had died during childbirth. Other sources do not hint to that. Also, none of the sources say specifically how he found out, but David, at 21 years old, found out that his birth name had been Richard David Falco and that his birth mother was in fact still alive. So he ventured out to find her, and find her he did. It started with him sending her a Mother's Day card. She was happy to see him, she later said, and he found out that he had a half-sister, Rosalind. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Then, after a few visits, Betty told him the story of his conception. She explained that she hadn't wanted to adopt him out, but felt that she had no other choice. David was horrified to find out that he had been the product of an affair with a married man who had wanted nothing to do with him, and it sent him in a tailspin. Around this time, David moved into an apartment and wrote to his father in Florida that he felt like he was deeply depressed. This next bit of information, well, David has changed his story from time to time, but I'm going to tell you what he confessed to after his capture. In November 1975, he said he began to really hear voices and that the voices told him he needed to kill. He felt like he had been unwanted, unloved, and rejected by his own birth parents, and also felt like his adoptive parents had lied to him about his birth mother dying during childbirth. He said he began to have no sense of self, an absolute existential crisis, if you will. He subsequently stopped visiting Betty, though he did stay in contact with Rosalind for a while after. Inside, anger and depression were swirling, and he continued to set fires. He would finally snap on Christmas Eve, 1975. He came upon two women walking in the Bronx. He had with him a large hunting knife. He attacked, and the first girl was able to fight back and was not seriously injured. The second girl was 15-year-old Michelle Foreman. He attacked her and stabbed her from behind as she crossed a bridge. She suffered six stab wounds but somehow survived. Soon after, he moved to Yonkers, New York and got a job at the U.S. Postal Service sorting letters. In 1976, he got his gun permit and purchased a gun and four boxes of ammunition. David later stated that he was forced to move house again because he could not tolerate the howling of demons that he said he could hear at all times. But at his new place, his neighbor, Sam Carr, owned a black Labrador retriever named Harvey. 
David would later say that Harvey was possessed by a demon as well as Sam and that the dog demanded he kill and thus the son of Sam was born. On July 29, 1976, David approached an Oldsmobile car parked alongside the road in the Bronx just as 18-year-old Donna Loria opened her door and immediately noticed him. She said, quote, Now what is this? David pulled out a gun, covered by a paper bag, crouched, and fired. The bullet killed Donna instantly. Her friend, 19-year-old Jody Valenti, was shot through her thigh, and a third shot didn't make contact with either girl. David then immediately left the scene. Jody later described the shooter as a white male around 5 foot 9 or 1.75 meters tall and weighing around 160 pounds or 73 kilos with short, dark, curly hair. The father of the murdered Donna also saw the man from his window sitting in a small yellow car parked nearby. On September 22, 1976, David wrote a poem called, quote, Mother of Satan. It reads, Old Mother Hubbard sitting near the cupboard with a hand grenade under the oatmeal. Who will you kill now, daughter of Satan? In the image of the Virgin Mary, pure and innocent, the great impersonator, is that you? Yes. How many have you deceived, lured to the slaughter like a fat cow? Unquote. Three months later, David walked up to a parked car in a residential area of Queens and shot into the window of the car. 20-year-old Carl DeNaro, thinking that they had just been shot at, started the car and sped away, not realizing he had a bullet wound to his head. 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan had been with him but had not been injured. Carl had to get a metal plate in his head to replace part of his skull. On November 27, 1976, David Berkowitz approached 16-year-old Donna DeMacy and 18-year-old Joanne Lomino, who were sitting and talking on Joanne's porch, and began to ask for directions. But before he finished his sentence, he pulled out his gun and fired several shots. Joanne was struck in the neck but survived. Donna was shot in the back and was left a paraplegic. Two months later, 30-year-old John and his fiancée, 26-year-old Christine, were sitting alone in John's car in Queens. It was very late. David walked up to the couple and fired three shots. John drove away to take Christine to the hospital as she was shot twice, but she later died at the hospital. At this point, the police had received two different descriptions of the shooters, one that matched David perfectly, but the other, strangely, was described as blonde. This discrepancy led the authorities to believe that there were actually two perpetrators. On March 8, 1977, around 7.30 p.m., David confronted 19-year-old Virginia as she was walking home from class that she attended at Columbia University. As Virginia realized the man had a gun, 
She quickly pulled up her books to try to protect her face, but it was not successful. David had shot her in the head and killed her. A few moments after that, a person from the neighborhood who had heard the gunshot walked around a corner and nearly ran into a man that he described as short, husky, in his late teens, who was clean-shaven. Others had seen this young man who matched David Berkowitz's description as well. The then New York City mayor, as well as New York Police Department officials, held a press conference on March 10, 1977, stating the same gun had killed Virginia and Donna. What they didn't say during the press conference was that they also had strong evidence that it was the same gun that had been used in other shootings. The shootings were all over the newspapers and on TV, especially the New York Post as well as the Daily News. They didn't spare the gory details either. David's murders even made the front page of newspapers as far away as Rome and the Soviet Union. On April 10, 1977, David's neighbor, Sam Carr, received an anonymous letter complaining about his dog and was signed, quote, a citizen. A week after Sam received the letter, a young couple were sitting in a car in the Bronx at around 3 a.m., only a few blocks from one of the other shootings. David walked up to the vehicle and shot each occupant twice, killing the girl immediately. The young man died later at the hospital. That same night, David Berkowitz received a traffic ticket for driving his car with no proof of insurance. The authorities were able to match the bullets from the other shootings. They also found a letter near that vehicle addressed to the NYPD captain. Now, it's a long letter, but it stated, quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, Sunny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens 
are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anyone, no, sir. No more, but I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I wa want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I will say goodbye and goodnight. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang, uh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Unquote. I read it verbatim. So psychologists analyzed the letter and their profile of him stated he was neurotic and probably suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and believes himself to be a victim of demonic possession. Then on May 30th, 1977, the Daily News received a letter from a person who claimed to be the 44 caliber shooter and was postmarked from New Jersey. On the back of the envelope, the person had wrote, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, 44. The letter read, quote, Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim... What will you have for your 29th? You can forget about me if you like because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, I don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever. If I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at your next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at your next job? Remember, Miss Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC, the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls, P.S. Please inform all of the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. 
JB, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. Unquote. Now, under the Son of Sam signature was a sketch of a symbol, and I'm going to try to describe it. It looks like the letter X with little arrows on the end of each line. On the inside of the top V where the lines intersect is a drawn cross. On the inside right side is the symbol for male. The bottom, an S. And in the left inside part is the symbol for female. At first, the authorities thought the mention of July 29th was a threat as it would be the one-year anniversary of his first shooting. The newspaper handed it immediately over to the police. The odd handwriting threw the police off, making them think that the author might have had a profession in printing, calligraphy, or graphic design. The New York Times printed the letter with key pieces withheld and the police asked that the murderer turn himself in. All of the shooting victims matched a physical type, longer dark hair. So the women all around the area began to cut their hair short and bleach it blonde. Others bought wigs. The beauty supply stores had a difficult time keeping anything like this in stock. On June 26, 1977, young couple, 20-year-old Sal Lupo and 17-year-old Judy Placido, had just left a disco dance hall in Queens. They got into Sal's car around 3 a.m. David approached the car and shot three times. Sal was shot in his forearm, but Judy was shot through her right temple, her shoulder, and the back of her neck, and by some miracle, they both survived. When questioned later, they said that they had just been talking about the Son of Sam murders just as they were shot. Witnesses gave the police the same description as others had. On July 31, 1977, 20-year-olds Stacy and Robert were in Robert's car. He had been careful to park it under a bright streetlight in a neighborhood of Brooklyn. The couple began kind of making out when David walked up and shot four shots into the car. Both were shot in the head. Robert lost one of his eyes, and Stacy was killed. At this point, a local resident came forward to say that she had seen a police officer putting a parking ticket on a car that had been parked way too close to a fire hydrant while walking her dog. She said after a young man that fit the description of the son of Sam walked past her headed in that direction toward the car and she could see that he was holding something dark in his hand. She stated that he turned and looked at her and she became frightened and ran home. Just as she got inside she heard more gunshots. So the police frantically began going through their recent ticket records and gathered them up. David's 1970 yellow Ford Galaxy was in the pile and they began to investigate. As they had been doing with other tickets, they contacted the Yonkers Police Department who explained that they had some reasonable suspicion about Berkowitz due to some strange crimes that had been committed there 
and another reference in one of Son of Sam's letters. On August 10, 1977, the police found David's car parked outside of his apartment building in Yonkers. Visible from the window was a rifle in the back seat, so they gained entry to the car and found a bag full of ammunition, maps of each crime scene, and another letter addressed to the Omega Task Force. They felt sure that they had their suspect, so they backed off and waited for David to exit the building. At 10 p.m., David came out, he got into his car, and a detective walked up to the driver's side. He carefully pointed his gun at David's head. Another officer came from the passenger side and pointed his gun at David as well. Inside the car was the 44 caliber revolver that would later be identified as the murder weapon. The detective said, quote, Now that I've got you, who have I got? David said in a calm and sweet voice, You know. The detective said, No, I don't. You tell me. David said, I'm Sam. You're Sam. Sam who? And David replied, Sam, David Berkowitz. As the police searched his apartment, they noted that it was in disarray. David had drawn satanic symbols all over the walls. They found his journals he had been writing since he was 21 years old. David was now 24. They saw that David had kept incredibly detailed notes about the innumerable fires he had started. They knew they had caught the son of Sam and announced to the media, quote, The people of the city of New York can rest easy because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam, unquote. David immediately confessed and pled guilty. He said that his neighbor's dog, Harvey, had been telling him that he needed the blood of young girls that the dog had been possessed by an ancient demon and David was powerless to not heed the dog's commands. Now, David was studied by three separate psychiatrists to see if he were mentally healthy and could stand trial. All three agreed that he could. David pled guilty to all of the shootings and on June 12, 1978, David Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each murder. Now, interestingly, the next year, David declared the demon possession as a hoax. He said that he had been thinking about murder for a very long time before he actually committed it. He felt like exacting revenge on the world because it had rejected and hurt him. Another inmate slashed David on the left side of his neck that required many stitches to close. But David was fine with it. He said that he deserved it. David now wants to be known as the Son of Hope and has written a book titled Son of Hope, The Prison Journals of David Berkowitz. He is a born-again Christian and is deeply involved in the prison ministry and even counsels other inmates. Now, David's story has changed and evolved over the years. He once stated he had joined a satanic cult, but then he would later retract that statement. He has said that he's had accomplices, and then said that he didn't. 
His adoptive father, Nathan, granted an interview where he apologized to the victims' families for what his son had done. And then, other than having to have emergency heart surgery two years ago, he is still alive and living his life out in prison. So, guys, was David born to kill? Was he conditioned to kill? It's really hard to say in this case. His parents treated him very well, and I don't believe there was any form of abuse or neglect there. I can't say whether or not he inherited any genetic propensity for violence, but his biological mother didn't seem to suffer from any mental illness, and as far as we know, his biological father was okay as well. Being an only child can be lonely, but there are literally billions of us, myself included, that were raised as only children who didn't set off any violent chain of events. So this leaves us at a crossroads. He mostly targeted young couples and vehicles, especially women with longer, dark hair. This is something Ted Bundy did as well. Experts speculate, and I'm inclined to agree, that after he found out he was adopted, something changed in him. After, he lost his adoptive mother, whom he adored, and she had longer, dark hair. And though she didn't leave him willingly, she did die and left him alone. He found his biological mother, who also had had longer, dark hair, and he felt abandoned and unwanted by her. Plus, he knew he had been what they then called an illegitimate child, meaning born out of wedlock, and then given away as something less than acceptable, and all of this, along with some possible pathology in his brain, set him off. But, what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at SerialKilling.Squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I love it. And thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate each one of you as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.